This evening has uh, come out of um, an evening that Robert and Gary and Eve spent with some Jehovah's Witnesses last week. And so what tonight is, uh, you know, I mean, sort of some were aware this was going to happen, others aren't, but it's, uh, you know, sort of like questions like about JWs. And I know that Robert has got a, a long a list of things that, that he wants to bring up. So we'll just like fire away and see where it takes us. John fourteen twenty eight, yes. Right. Right. Yeah, I'll just read it out. This is Jesus speaking. Uh, you heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Right, okay, that's one. Are there others that you want to go through as well? Or? Um, well, eventually you've got to get to the Corinthians ones, haven't you? So let's do the Corinthian ones because I have to refer to them anyway. Right, okay. So carry on with this. Yep, do. Uh, John twenty seventeen. John twenty seventeen. Well, it says, uh, "I Right. Fifteen twenty-eight. I just read out that one Corinthians one. Uh, now I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. That was the. And this is and the next one is one Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight. Um, now then, when when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. <coughs> right, okay. Does that sort of like complete that list, or are there others yet? John 3.16 Yes, John 3.16 Um, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son or only begotten son um, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life right Colossians 1.15 so try to remember all of these yeah all creation yes that's um uh, Colossians one fifteen. Yes, here's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Right, okay. Revelations three. 
to the church in uh, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write these are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness the ruler of God's creation right uh, right yes yeah 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 actually that um that one will tie in with the Colossians one when we look at the Colossians one shall we right yeah <laughs> yeah right um okay yeah let me uh they come together in various categories but um we'll go through them but obviously the the main the fundamental difference between jehovah's witnesses and ourselves as christians is that we believe that jesus is god himself that he's the second person in a trinity that god there is one god but this one god exists in three persons father son and holy spirit and uh, obviously as christians we maintain that this is absolutely consistent with what the bible teaches indeed it is what the bible teaches the jw's believe that um it's a bit difficult to get your head around but bear with me that jesus the one who we call jesus was originally the archangel michael he then came on a man called jesus the man jesus is dead but the Jesus who was originally the Archangel Michael rose again, not physically, but as a spirit. And I suppose he's back to being an angel again, but he's Jesus now, not the Archangel Michael. He's God's son, not Archangel Michael. That's, that's what the JWs teach about the person of Jesus. If you say to them, Jesus, who is he? That, once you, you know, sort of like get it out of them, that is actually what they believe. And so, therefore, um, they quote the verses that Robert has given us tonight. Um, because they would say that uh, these verses establish from the Bible, which they say is God's word, uh, that these verses establish from the Bible that the Bible teaches that Jesus isn't God. All right, and uh, you know, and sort of like these are verses that they give um, in regards to it. Now, let's let's do the first clump first. All right, and it was all this thing about um you know sort of like the father being greater than jesus um throughout the ministry of jesus jesus um sort of like spoke in terms that he was in submission to his father and that the father was greater than he was and so what we've got to ask ourselves is 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 this the bible showing us that jesus is less than god and therefore not God because after all if someone is less than God they're not God all right and the key to it we saw the verses in John the father is greater than I but the key to it is if you go to the 1 Corinthians 11 verses um, I'll read out the one that we quoted and it's one of those things this is so simple and straightforward that it's only when you get it in context that it all falls into place now then, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, <clears throat> Paul says, Now I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. 
Now, clearly, Paul is talking here about um, authority, lines of authority. And what he's dealing with immediately, the immediate context, and the reason why he says these words, is he's explaining to the Corinthian church, who had two groups of people in the church, converted Greeks, and of course they were Corinthian Greeks, I mean, so they really were pretty deplorable lot morally, because Corinth was well known for that. So you had uh, sort of Greek converts, and you had Jewish converts. The immediate point that Paul is dealing with here in these verses is how you, um, you know, deport yourself in regards to worship. And uh, there was, uh, you know, the big controversy about head coverings, which boils down simply to this. The background was, okay, that the Greeks worshipped in their natural pagan state, state, the Greeks worshipped without being veiled, all right? The men and the women had, didn't have anything over their face. They were unveiled. And so, therefore, they were coming along to the worship. They got converted and they were carrying on as they had done before they got converted. They didn't wear veils then and they're not wearing them now. The Jews in the Corinthian church, both men and women, were used to worshipping before they were converted, veiled. The men and women wore veils in worship. And so they're coming along to the worship and they're wearing veils as well. Right. And so Paul's sorting out who's right and who's wrong. And basically, the context of it, or you know, the push behind Paul's argument, is simply this. Who's right? Are the Jews right to be veiled or not? All right. And what he says is the Greeks are right not to be veiled because neither a woman nor a man, once they've come to Jesus, needs to be veiled because we behold him with, you know, sort of like unveiled face. So the Jews were wrong. So he's saying you don't need to be veiled. However, he does have to address the thing that the Corinthian ladies tended to be a little bit unruly and, uh, you know, sort of in their newfound liberation and, uh, you know, were far from, shall we say, the submissive wives that the Bible would have them be. And Paul reminds them that though they're unveiled, and that's quite right, their long hair acts as a kind of veil and is the kind of insignia to the angels that as women, their long hair is the badge of their submission to their husbands. All right. Um, But he also has to deal with the fact that the Greeks their men had long hair. And in long hair, I'm talking about long hair. I mean, this was sort of like, you know, real long hair. And so, you know, Paul was saying, well, okay, now you Greek men, you really need to get your hair cut because, um, you know, your hair is acting as the very veil that you're saying the Jews are wrong for having in worship. And so that's, that's sort of like the background to it. And, of course, these immediate verses is simply Paul establishing that women should be in submission to their husbands. And he does this, let's actually read it, I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, so Jesus is in direct authority over the husband, the head of woman is man, alright? So the man is in direct authority over his wife, and the head of Christ is God, so God, the Father, is in direct authority over Jesus. Now then, the question that we're asking, and this is the push that the JWs give, not just to this verse here, but the other ones about Jesus saying, my father is greater than I. The push behind it is we're asking, is this language of greater or under and the head, all right, is this the language of inequality, or is it the language of function? By which I mean this. It is quite possible to have two people, and one has authority over the other. 
it doesn't necessarily mean that that person is greater than the other person. They're, they're both equal. Now, here's the point. If you said to a JW, do you believe that women are equal to men? I think you'll find that they will answer yes. They'd have little choice. After all, the Bible makes it quite clear in Genesis that men and women were made in the image of God. Men and women are equal. So there's no question of men being superior to women, or indeed women being superior to men. Men and women are equal, and the Bible establishes that. So when Paul says that the head of woman is man, is he saying that the husband is superior to the wife, of a different order to the wife? He's not saying that at all. He's just saying that the man has the authority. There's an authority structure functionally and the woman is under the man the man is the head of the woman they're equal so we can see that in this context Paul is using the language not to establish whether someone is superior to somebody else he's establishing an authority structure to allow function because obviously in marriage you can't have a democracy on the committee of two people and God gave the man the headship over the woman that goes right back to Genesis so we've established here that the man is the head of the woman. But this doesn't mean he's superior, he's equal. Therefore, when Paul in the same verse says that the head of Christ is God, is he using the language to establish that Jesus is inferior to God the Father? No, that is not his purpose. This verse does not establish for us one way or the other whether Jesus is God or not. That is not the function of the of the verse here. The verse is simply saying that Jesus put himself in submission to God in the same way that a wife must put herself in submission to her husband. Now then, does a, does a wife, in submitting to her husband, is she declaring that she is inferior and that he is superior? Of course not. And in exactly the same way, this verse does not establish one way or the other whether Jesus is equal to the Father. It establishes that Jesus is under the Father's authority. You see the difference? So question, is Belinda inferior to me? I wouldn't dare say she was if I thought it, I don't. <laughs> but no, obviously, is Belinda inferior to me? No, of course she's not. She is my equal. She's created in the image of God, one level. Second level, she's a child of God. She's born again. Belinda is equal. She's my equal in every respect, in that sense. But... Belinda is under my authority because I'm the head of the house. Obviously, I must use that authority, you know, lovingly and to bring freedom, not bondage. But the point is, what we're saying here is that in order for person A to submit to person B, it's not establishing that person B is superior. So, therefore, in using these verses, uh, well, we can see quite clearly that the New Testament uses the language of greater and lesser to establish not superiority and inferiority but to establish uh, authority now then if we want to ask the question well then so does the Bible anywhere establish whether or not Jesus is actually equal with the Father in the sense of being God himself we can see here that Jesus um, is, is, is said to be under the Father in authority wise he was submitting to the Father as far as function was concerned. 
Well, are there any verses in the Bible that tell us whether or not Jesus considered himself to be equal to the Father as well? And obviously there was a particular occasion when the Jews accused him of blasphemy because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So that's the verse that establishes that Jesus considered himself. I mean, Belinda and I are equal because we're both human beings. Belinda is under my authority as the woman, but we're equal. Now then, the verses here establish in Corinthians that Jesus submits to God the Father, but it doesn't necessarily establish whether or not he is also equal to the Father. We're not equal to the Father, are we? Crumbs, of course not. But when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, there you see it quite clearly that the Bible teaches that one at the same time that Jesus is equal to the Father in the same way that Belinda is equal to me. Why is Belinda equal to me? We're both human beings made in the image of God. Why is Jesus equal to the Father? Because they're both God. <laughs> right? But we see that even though a man and a wife are equal but the wife submits to the husband in exactly the same way God the Father and Jesus are equal. Jesus said I and the Father are one. Alright? And obviously, one has to answer the question, why did the Jews keep accusing Jesus of blasphemy? Because they knew full well he was saying he was God. I mean, if the JWs are right in their, interpret you know, in their interpretation of the Bible, what was all the fuss about as far as the Jews were concerned? So the point is, we've established that the, the Bible quite clearly tells us that Jesus and the Father are equal in the sense they're both God, the same as Blind and I are equal, we're both human beings, but there's an authority structure and the authority structure works that the father is in authority over Jesus, Jesus is in authority over the husband, the husband is in authority over the woman, and that's the way it works. And so these verses where you get Jesus in John, you know, talking about the father is greater than I am, you'll find that all the time, uh, I mean, Jesus said, I do nothing on my own accord, I do only what I see the father doing. Now, that is not Jesus saying he wasn't equal with God, because we know that elsewhere Jesus made it very clear he was equal to God, because he is God. But functionally, Jesus was living in submission to his Father in heaven. And so, therefore, when you get the verses that talk about, you know, that sort of like Jesus will, as it were, give the kingdom to God the Father, and everything will be subject to God the Father, well, that's absolutely right and proper. There's a sense in which Jesus presents everything and everyone to the Father, and everyone is in subjection to Jesus, but Jesus is in subjection to the Father. Uh, you know, I, I mean, it, it's, you know, again, it's not establishing that Jesus isn't God. This language is only establishing, you know, that he was in submission to God, his Father. But we find out from other verses in the Bible that it makes quite clear, Jesus made quite clear himself, that uh, he was equal with God, I and the Father are one. Um, let's let's go over and have a look at the Colossians verse, which will um, we'll take this in stages and come back on on each point. But the Colossians verse, um, and this will you know sort of like relate, and I think you'll see in what way it relates to the verse in Revelation. So this is Colossians, Colossians one and verse fifteen. <coughs> um, <coughs> Oh, incidentally, again, the point about Jesus being God's Son, right, the Son of God, is not a denial in any way at all. I mean, Jesus, when he was saying he was the Son of God, was not saying he wasn't God. You know, I mean, if, uh, you know, sort of like if Gary, you know, I mean, Gary has a son, Adam. Adam isn't Gary. But Gary's one person. The Godhead is three persons in one Godhead. 
And I mean, the whole point is, we're going to see it here. The thing about sonship is that the eldest son carried the authority of the father. And also, Jesus was literally God the Father the Son because he became a man. Having existed from eternity in the form of God, he put that aside and Jesus became a human being. In order for the second person of the Trinity to become a human being, he had to be born of woman. That's what a human being is. In order to be born of woman, he needed a mother and he needed a father. Who was his father? God the Father. Not Joseph, God the Father. So Jesus is literally God's son. It doesn't stop him. You know, when Jesus uses the terminology, you find this, um, you know, like in the liberals today, in the, you know, in the Christian church, and they try to say, oh, no, 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 it's a myth. Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be the son of God. They, they just do not understand the Bible or the Jewish setting in which it was. Jesus wasn't. If Jesus had gone around in the uh, 1960s, California, saying, I'm the son of God. Well, I mean, all the hippies sitting around, smoking their joints, and saying, hey man, this is great, yeah, hey man, so are we. See, the point is, Jesus taught that he was the son of God to the Jews. And every time he did so, the Jews accused him of blasphemy, because they knew full well that when Jesus claimed to be the son of God, that was a claim that no sane person had ever made. In the Old Testament, Israel was said to be God's son as a nation, but the idea of an individual being the son of God, this was a completely new idea. Um, you know, sort of like throughout the Old Testament, I mean, there was a sense in which Adam was, was called the son of God in the sense that he was created miraculously, and uh, the angels were called sons of God as well. But that kind of individual relationship, the son of God, that was something completely new. And the Jews were perfectly aware that when Jesus was saying, claiming to be God's son, he was claiming to have God's authority because that's what sonship is all about in the Jewish mind. The number one son carried the authority of the father and indeed was authorised to do everything the father did in the father's absence. He was as good as the father if the father wasn't there. That's the whole point about Jewish sonship. That was their background. Now then, no man has ever seen God, the Bible says, but we see him in the face of Jesus. That's the point. The Jews knew full well that Jesus' claim to be God's son was a way of claiming to be the very manifestation of God. And uh, the Jews knew that, and that's why they accused him of blasphemy. Now, with that, bearing that in mind, uh, let's um, you know, sort of read these Colossians verses, and then we'll ask ourselves, I mean, are these pro the idea of Jesus being God or against the idea of Jesus being God? Now then, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And the JWs say, there you go, he's the firstborn over all creation, isn't he? He was made. He was a created being. What have we just seen that sonship meant to the Jews? The whole concept of number one son. He had the authority of the Father. Here, when it talks about Jesus being the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation, this is Paul simply establishing that Jesus has the authority of God over all creation. And why? Verse 16, For by him all things were created. Now you see, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and before, th before him. He is before all things. Well, of course he's before all things. He made everything. And in him all things hold together. Now here's the point. If the JWs are maintaining that when Paul says Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, they're saying this establishes he is a created being, well, how come in verse 16, Paul then goes on and says, but Jesus created everything that is created? I mean, can you see the nonsense of what they're trying to establish? You can't, on the one hand, say that, well, verse 15 is Paul saying, Jesus was a created being. Well, we know he, he was actually the Archangel Michael. He's not now, but he was then. Jesus is a created being. That's Colossians 1, verse 15. Now then, what does Paul, who they believe to be inspired by God, say in the next verse? Well, Paul says in the next verse that Jesus created absolutely everything, including the principalities and powers. Principalities and powers, what are they? The angels? I mean, can you see how, how crazy it is? So then, going through these verses, what are we asking? He is the image of the invisible God. Well, no man has seen God, but Paul says, but we behold him in the face of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God become a man. So therefore, if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, let me ask you, how can a created being be the image of the uncreated God? It's lunatic, it's daft. And so, in regards to this, it's, you know, sort of like, a, you know, sort of like, Paul makes it quite, quite clear here that, um, you know, that, that, that Jesus is God. You know, I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's just no question in regards to it. And um, verse 19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Well, well I mean, God in his complete fullness dwelt in Jesus. Well, what does that mean? I mean, in the Old Testament, the temple was built, God moved in. So, and Jesus spoke of his own body being the temple because God lived in Jesus because Jesus was God and so Colossians um, establishes um, not that Jesus wasn't God but um, it establishes precisely the opposite that Jesus is God and so that kind of firstborn over all creation it's talking about the rights of the firstborn the picture is and everyone reading the letter would have understood what Paul was talking about the firstborn there carries the idea of the supremacy and the complete authority of Jesus over all creation. And it's precisely because he has authority over all creation that he can then present it to God the Father. Because Jesus is under the authority of God the Father. And, you know, so again, there's nothing... Let's just do the Revelation 1. Revelation 3, um, verse 14. And this is to... Uh, the angel in the church in Laodicea. Now then, this this word ruler of God's creation, all right. Uh, the NIV has created has uh, translated it ruler, simply because the the Greek word means first, but it can mean first in time or first in authority. It can mean either of those. You know, I mean, um, uh, in America, the president's wife is the first lady. 
I mean, we use the word in the same way. Now then, you look at the context. Um, I mean, Mrs. Clinton is America's first lady. Does that mean there haven't been any ladies before her? Of course not. That's not... You look at the context. It's establishing she is the number one lady in America because her husband is the most powerful man in the country. That makes her the most powerful woman in the country. She's first in the sense of authority and supremacy. So, therefore, because here this could read, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the first of God's creation. So then we ask, establish, well, does this mean, is this establishing that this Jesus here is revealing himself to John and he's given him these letters, all right, to deliver to the churches? Is this here simply establishing that Jesus was created first? Because then we're back to the JWs, aren't we? Because, of course, then Jesus could be the Archangel Michael and he was the one created first. Is that what it's meaning? Jesus was the first thing that was created. Well, no, because we've already seen in the Colossians verses they try to use that that, it says quite clearly that Jesus made everything. So, therefore, the one who made everything cannot be the first one to have been made. You see the point? If Obviously, the everything includes everything except God himself. The JWs will accept that. So if Jesus created everything, he's not part of the everything that got created. So if Jesus created everything, he's not therefore part of the everything that got created. So what must he be? Eternal God himself. So, in this verse here, when we see this is, you know, he's the, the, the first, does it mean that he's uh, like the first over creation, they just mean here is the ultimate authority as far as the church in Laodicea is concerned. Now then, if we go back to um, chapter 1 and uh, now then, let's see and uh, in chapter 1 you actually have Jesus' appearance to John let's, let's have a look at what he says um, this is Verse 17, this is John's But When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, or I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, does that sound like a pretty godlike thing to be saying to John? It does to me. I am the first and the last? Now then, if Jesus had just been saying, I am the first, well then we might be inclined to say, well, okay, well now we've got to look at the context, does this mean first in the sense of appeared first? Or does it mean first in the sense of ultimate, number one, totally supreme, blah, blah, blah. But he doesn't just say I'm the first, he says I'm the last as well. So does that mean that Jesus is going to be the last person to be extinguished from the universe? Well, no, 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 because the JWs believe that at least 144,000 of them live forever. So the last doesn't refer to the last one left. The first, therefore, doesn't refer to the first one on the scene, as it were. And when you get the phrase, I am the Alpha and the Omega, Omega being the last letter in the Greek alphabet, Alpha being the first, Omega the last, A, A to Z, right? When you get Jesus saying that, do you get the idea here that kind of, he's talking about maybe his eternality, the first and the last? Do you get the feeling he's maybe saying, there has never been a time when I wasn't? 
And is it significant that he says, I am the first and the last? When God appeared to Moses out of the burning bush, when Moses says, well, who shall I say sent me? Shall I tell them that Fred sent me? And God said, no, tell them that I am sent you. And the full import of that I am is eternality. I am an endless moment because there's never been a time when God hasn't been. God is eternal. And you'll remember an occasion when uh, Jesus was talking to the Jews about Abraham and they said, but you're not 50 years old. and you, you say you've seen Abraham. All right. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And they wanted to stone him for blasphemy. Why did they want to stone him for blasphemy? The JWs will tell you, yeah, Jesus says before Abraham was like, because he was an angel, he was the archangel Michael, so he was created before Abraham was. Well, let me tell you that the Jews did not consider it blasphemous to believe that you were an angel. They considered it a bit queer. They wouldn't have thought you were at all normal. But they did not consider it blasphemous to believe you're an angel. They would consider you mental. So why did they pick up stones to stone him? Because in the law of Moses, it was established that anyone who's a blasphemer should be stoned. So clearly the Jews knew full well that when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, they knew full well he was claiming to be Jehovah God, who revealed himself to Moses out of the burning bush. And so they wanted to stone him. So, you know, the point is, and this is always the point when people are twisting what the Bible says, they always want their cake and they always want to eat it. They want one thing that the Bible says in one place to mean one thing, but then when the same thing is in a different place in the Bible, they then want it to mean something else. And, of course, you just can't have it. When Jesus says, I am the first, in um, chapter 3, they want it to mean that, um, you know, that sort of he's just saying, well, no, I was around before anyone else, like, because I was created first. But the same Jesus says, I am the... And all the other things. The same Jesus who said, the Father is greater than I which they say, look there, he wasn't God, said the Father and I are one, and the Jews wanted to stone him for blasphemy. You can't have it both ways. The JWs do want it both ways. Um, in numerous points in their <coughs> translation, their New World Translation, which is, is fixed. You know, I mean, it's not, a, it's not an accurate translation at all. And I mean, I'm not going to go into all the Greek things. I mean, that would be boring, and it would also be beyond me without prepared notes. But the point is, there are certain places in the Bible where, you know, I mean, it's like the, the, the best one, known one, is the John, John chapter 1. I mean, go, go to John 1, all right? I'm not going to go into the Greek of it, but I'm just going to give you the idea of, again, the way they want to have their cake and eat it, all right? Um, now then, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now then, the key thing in that is that I've just read in my Bible that the Word was God. And of course we know from later on, a few verses down, that the Word became flesh. This is talking about Jesus. So our Bibles, which are the correct ones, say the Word was God. The New World Translation of the Bible reads thus, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, and they then put a small g. 
or alternative, they do it, and a God was the word. But can you see the fundamental point? Can you see the profound difference between our Bible that says the word was God, now that requires a capital G. Now in the Greek, forget capitals, it was all written in capitals. Right, anyway, unctuals they're called. Um, Now, so our capitals and small letters are just part of our grammar. So if it says, and the word was God, that would require that a capital G goes on the beginning of God, because it's establishing that this word was God. The JW Bible, they say, no, 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 no. It should be, and the word was a God. Therefore, because it's establishing that the word was a God, you've got to put God as a little g, otherwise you've got polytheism, you've got more than one God. Now then, basically, the reason they say that our Bible is wrong and theirs is right, is they say the preposition is missing. Therefore, the the, um, you know, the word was God, alright, what they're saying is, there's, um, it should be an a instead. So rather than the word was God, it should be the word was a God. They say there's no preposition there. So if there's a preposition there, therefore it should be a God. And they, they'll go into great lengths about this in the Greek. All right. And yes, technically they're absolutely correct. That is the case. Different languages work in different ways. We have a's and ver's and it's and prepositions that not necessarily other languages do have. So they say the grammatical construction in the Greek should be that this is and the word was a God. Right, fine, okay. The problem is that um, in the first three verses in the Bible, uh, in in, in here, in chapter 1, you've got, in the beginning was the word. Now that has exactly the same Greek construction as the one that they're saying, no, you can't say the, the word was God, you've got to say it's a God. So you can't say the word is God, you've got to say it's a God. But why don't they translate the rest of the verse, in a beginning was a word? Because if what they say about the Greek, if they're going to be consistent, if they're going to say our Bible's wrong to not have the word was a God, then it means that our Bibles are wrong not to say in a beginning was a word. That changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. And so again they want to have their cake and they want to eat it. The New World World, world Translation doesn't start, you know, John's Gospel doesn't say in a beginning was a word and a word was God and the word was a God. It doesn't say that. Nonsense, isn't it? There, Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, and thus far they're right, and then totally logically they change the rules, a God. You see, if it's a God there, it should be in a beginning, not in the beginning. Are you getting the basic, it's complicated to explain, but you see the basic point. The thing is that they want to be able to change the rules for interpretation from the Greek to the English from one verse to the next. And it's just absolutely crazy. And, uh, you know, so I mean, it's like, um, I'll give you another example of, um, you know, the way that they sort of do this. They want their cake and to eat it. And, um, one of, obviously, because their, their, their beef with Christians is the Trinity, because 
they don't believe in the Trinity. So therefore you've got God the Father is that God, period, right? Jesus was originally the Archangel Michael. The Holy Spirit isn't, you know, the third person of the Trinity. It's a false. It's just, just that it's an impersonal false, right? And they'll point out, and they're quite right, that when our Bibles, like, go through and refer that the Holy Spirit to he, that in the Greek it's an it. It's not he at all, it's an it, right? They're absolutely right. But the point is, from the Greek, you work out whether it's an it of, you know, whether it's an impersonal or a personal, and if personal, whether feminine or masculine, from the context and the construction. Now then, obviously, from our point of view, if we say, right, okay, so why does the Bible put he on the Holy Spirit? And the answer is, it's quite clear from the context that it's talking about a spirit who is a personality. Because this spirit can be a comforter. This spirit can be grieved. This spirit can be lied to. Is he? And indeed, the Bible actually calls the Holy Spirit God himself, because when Ananias and Sapphira uh, did their thing, Peter says to them, firstly, you lied to God, and then he says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is God. But they say, no, 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 that's all cheating, it's an it. Now then, let's ask them, do JWs believe in Satan? Oh, yes, they do. Do JWs believe that Satan is a person? Oh, yes, they do. Now, why do JWs believe that Satan is a person, even though he's a spirit and the same grammar appears, you know, applies the same rules, it, it, it. That's all, because it's quite clear from the context that Satan's a person, because he's a, you know, he's a murderer, he's a liar. He's... See? So, if, if, if they want the Holy Spirit to be an impersonal force, if they're going to be consistent, they've got to have Satan and indeed all angels and demons as impersonal forces as well, but they don't. They change the rules. And you can read their elaborate theses on the Greek, establishing why the Holy Spirit should be it, not he. And it's not he in the Greek, so it shouldn't be. Well, no, technically they're correct, but you establish. We've already seen, in our language, we have words that have different meanings from different contexts. We even have words that, that, that can mean the opposite, depending on their context. I'll give you an example. If you take the word or the verb to cleave, now then, what does the verb to cleave mean? Well, it means one, to separate. It means two, to bring together. You have a meat cleaver. When you put someone in the cleft of a rock, right, that, that's from the word cleave. So, in one application, a meat cleaver cleaves the meat. It separates it. But what does a man do when he leaves his mother? And goes with his wife. He cleaves to her. He sticks to her. He becomes one with her. The same word actually has opposite meanings depending on the context. And you look at the context to establish what the actual meaning is. So the point is that when, a, you know, for instance, a man shall leave his mother and cleave to his wife, doesn't mean a man shall leave his mother and leave his wife. From the context, it's obvious what meaning is you and so it is when the you know all this thing about the Holy Spirit, it, it, blah blah blah. See, they change the rules. If the Holy Spirit is an it and not a person, then Satan is in it and not a person. It's as simple as that. But they quite illogically say, no, Satan is a person. Oh, why? Because he has all the characteristics of a person. Oh, but that's precisely the point about the Holy Spirit. Oh, no, no, that's different, they say. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just daft, you know. I mean, they're all the time they're wanting to have their cake and to eat it as well. Oh, what, the one that... that, that I did refer to it, but let's. Um, when I was saying about you know Jesus submitting, subjecting everything to 
1 Corinthians 15 boom, boom, boom. 1 Corinthians 15 <clears throat> right now then right now let's look at the um, the context here what is Paul dealing with in 1 Corinthians 15 he's dealing with the question is there an afterlife and if so what's it like right and he establishes yes there is an afterlife because there isn't I mean what a bunch of twits we are living in the light of it so he says yes of course there's an afterlife and the nature of this afterlife is it's going to be physical it's going to be more physical than down here but nevertheless it is going to be physical there's a resurrection body and what he's doing well let's actually read through it from verse 12 um, if, if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised our preaching is useless and so is your faith more than that we're then found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead so what Paul is saying if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead he's saying then not only are we deceived but we're actually blasphemous because we're preaching falsehoods about God and he said, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Because what Paul's saying, look, if we're living on the strength of an illusion, he says, then pity us, it's crazy. But obviously it's the truth. So then, the context here, Paul is dealing with resurrection in the light that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that our hope as Christians is that we also are going to be raised from the dead that our eternal existence in glory is going to be in a physical body so let us continue but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep now what is the first fruits what's all this about it's all about the feast of the first fruits it's about the idea that when the harvest you know kind of like grew they got the first sheaf of it and they sort of like said well you know sort of like here's the first sign of it because we got the first bit of the harvest we know the rest is going to appear simple as that <coughs> it started so it'll finish as it were and so simply jesus has been raised from the dead and he's the first fruits because jesus has been raised from the dead he's the guarantee he's the first sheaf and the rest of the harvest that's the rest of believers are going to follow and he says for since death came through a man the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man Adam as it were brought death into the world so it's Jesus who brings life for as in Adam all die so in Christ will all be made alive so the point here all made alive he's talking about getting a physical body throughout eternity unbelievers are raised from the dead as well only not to glory but to torment to eternal damnation and then he says so he says in Adam all die in Christ all will be made alive but each in his own turn so Paul's saying here there are going to be different points in time when different groups of people are raised from the dead there's going to be an order and he says Christ the first fruits so Jesus he was raised from the dead first then when he comes that's the rapture those who belong to him that's the christians who are alive at the rapture all right then the end will come 
and of course elsewhere paul paul leaves you know doing the order of events then but from the rest of his writings we you know we then know the old testament and blah 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 all right then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to god the father after he has destroyed all dominion authority and power so the point is that eventually after the second coming the kingdom of god will be established on the earth you have the thousand year reign of christ and eventually everything is brought in subjection to jesus and um and it says for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet the last enemy is to be to be destroyed is death and right at the end uh, you know the great white throne judgment all the unbelievers they're the only ones who are still without a body they're all raised from the dead before they're thrown into lake of fire so then that's the last enemy because then death has been completely destroyed that's why paul quotes the you know where is your death where is your victory where is your sting i mean because you know death has been defeated by jesus now then it says now when it says that everything has been put under him it uh, under him it is clear that this does not include god himself who put everything under christ well he's talking about god the father as opposed to god the son all right when he has done this then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. So the point is that Jesus, he, he will end up absolutely, visibly, in control of absolutely everything. Every knee has bowed before him and confessed that he is Lord, all right? Because God gave him the name that is above every name. So because Jesus submitted to God the Father, because he humbled himself even to the death on the cross, he's been raised up and given a name that is above every name all right so therefore as far as all creation is concerned jesus is number one when this has been done all right when it's been established that jesus is number one when every knee has bowed to jesus what will jesus do he'll turn to god the father and he'll subject it all to him because jesus agreed when he became a man to be submissive to god the father and Jesus is glorified as a man and so therefore Jesus kind of you know sort of like makes himself keeps being subject remains under God the Father because that is the order that God has established um, you know through everything that Jesus has done on the cross but again we've already seen the thing about everything being under Christ but Christ being under God the fact that something you know that someone is under someone doesn't necessarily mean they're inferior to can simply mean i mean yes it might be that they, i mean we are under christ because we're inferior to him but our being under him is an authority thing a functional thing jesus equally is under god the father but that doesn't mean that he that he's not equal with god the father the under just refers to the authority and so it's exactly the same thing here the fact that jesus remains subject to god the father doesn't mean that he isn't god himself because i mean for heaven's sake why is the whole creation going to bow down and call jesus lord if it's the case that god the father is god and that jesus is merely his son and not god and a, a new variant on the archangel michael all right why is it that in the end result every knee is going to bow to jesus and call him lord one of the interesting things, if you go through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, um, you see this, whenever angels, goody angels, are worshipped, they refuse the worship. John, in the Revelation, at one point bowed down to worship an angel, because he couldn't tell the difference between the angel and God, the angel was so glorious. The angel said, no, 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 no. 
angels, as indeed Christians, do you remember Paul and Barnabas, they were about to be worshipped as gods. They said, no, no, we're men like you are. And always the goody angels refused to be worshipped. But if Jesus is the archangel Michael, and if goody angels always refuse to be worshipped, why would God make every knee bow and declare lordship to an angel? It's daft, isn't it? Again, they want to have their cake and eat it as well. I mean, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord because Jesus is Lord. And uh, it's very significant in the New Testament Bible times that uh, the actual word Lord, Kyrios, is the Greek, you know, sort of like ties up with the Hebrew Adonai. And it's, it was quite clearly used in the sense of acknowledging a divinity. And of course, what it goes back to when Paul goes on about, you know, no one can say Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. You have to remember that he was writing to Christians who were living under what empire? Under the Roman Empire. And what was the religious push behind the Roman Empire? That everyone had to acknowledge that Caesar was Lord. And the reason that the Christians copped it uh, so much from the Romans is that they would not say that Caesar is Lord. And why wouldn't they say that Caesar is Lord? Because Caesar is Lord was an acknowledgement that he was divine. The Romans worshipped their leader, Caesar worshipped. So the point is that every tongue confessed that Jesus is Lord, <laughs> again, is quite clear that that's acknowledging Jesus to be divine. If, um, if acknowledging someone was Lord wasn't acknowledging they were divine, why didn't all the Christians just acknowledge that Caesar was Lord and live? Why did millions of them die? Because it was worship. And uh, Jesus accepted worship. Remember Thomas fell down, my Lord and my God. I mean, Jesus didn't tell him off. He didn't say, no, 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 don't, no, 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 you only worship God. Jesus received that worship. He said, blessed are you. But he said, it would have been better if you could have worshipped me as God without needing to see that I'm alive. So do, do, does that clear up the 1 Corinthians 1? Yeah. Did? A anything else from, you know, like what came up in your evening uh, with... I did mention about in Proverbs where it says that wisdom was there in the beginning. Yes. And we when in proverbs what you get in proverbs is that obviously i mean proverbs is part of what is known in in, in you know to the jews as the wisdom literature and it's all about wisdom and the the um the literary tool that um is used in proverbs is to personify wisdom and uh, and compare wisdom say to a you know sort of like a wife a precious wife and that's that's the you know in the beginning of proverbs you get kind of like you get the pull of the adulteress on one hand and the pull of wisdom on the other always go for wisdom now it's certainly true that paul says in corinthians that jesus is made unto us wisdom a sanctification. I mean, Jesus is the wisdom of God. But in Proverbs, it's simply personifying wisdom as a literary tool to get the point across. So, I mean, you know, wisdom was there in the beginning. Well, of course it was, because God is wise 
but the personification of wisdom. I mean, some people say that it's actually, you know, Proverbs, like that's actually Jesus himself. I mean, that's a bit bit silly, because, I mean, it's female, isn't it? I mean, it likens it to a wife all the time. And uh, Jesus isn't our wife. You know, I mean, the church is feminine in regards to Jesus, not masculine. And, um, you know, but it's simply, a, you know, sort of like a tool, a literary tool to personify wisdom. And then say, get, get, go for wisdom. Don't go for the adulteress, go for wisdom. So, you know, I mean, in, in, in quoting Proverbs, I mean, Proverbs, it doesn't relate in that way at all. It's, you know, it's just silly. The moment people start quoting books like Proverbs to try and establish points about the divinity of persons, I mean, they're desperate. Hmm. Remember as well, they teach that, that Jesus rose from the dead as a spirit, not physically. Not physically. Now, the fact that Jesus, you remember at the end of John's Gospel, do you remember he appeared to them, disciples had gone fishing, and they, Jesus ate, well, let's turn to it, John. Just bearing in mind that the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus rose as a spirit, that it was not a physical resurrection. Um, no, hang on a second. Uh, John chapter 16. But when he says that a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as huh. hang on a sec, I wonder if that's in um, perhaps that's in Luke. Um, when Jesus specifically says that a spirit does not have flesh and bones. As I do. I thought that was in John. Obviously not. Um, perhaps it's in let's try Luke. Um, that's it, yes, it's Luke. No, yeah, it's Luke, yes. It's the end of Luke. Luke twenty-four. Um yes, it's when he appears to them in the upper room. I was getting it mixed up with uh, when he was appeared to them when they were fishing. Now bear in mind the Watchtower teaches that Jesus rose again from the dead as a spiritual event, not physically. His body was just disposed of it, you know, as a normal corpse. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And then he ate some fish. Now then, bearing in mind, the Watchtower teach that Jesus rose again as a spirit, not physically. Now then, let's ask ourselves, is this Jesus' way of showing the disciples that he was a spirit? Well, of course, it's the exact opposite. They thought he was a spirit, and Jesus makes it absolutely clear to them that he was there 
in the same body that he had when he died because he's been resurrected I mean this is just the lunacy of um, you know I mean get JWs on things like this and they kind of go white um, you know I have to rush back to get help from you know sort of like their elders or whatever what makes them think that they have to work for their salvation because that's how you get saved um, salvation is not by grace um, well indeed the crazy thing about it is there is no salvation for them per se anyway because I mean unless you know I mean the Bible makes quite clear that and you know I mean there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus now that's what you know the Bible says that's what Paul writes to Timothy now then in order to have salvation you have to have someone who was God and man you know who, who can as it were hold hands with God on the one hand and mankind on the other and that's what Jesus did God became a man um, because they don't believe that they, they, they just have kind of technical points about Jesus dying as a blood ransom and, and stuff like that but at the end of the day you have to live in obedience to what the Bible says or really fundamentally to what the Watchtower says they don't believe in eternal judgment so unbelievers which would include you and I because we're not JWs I mean on a cursory level they'll kind of like acknowledge you as fellow Christians almost as if it's a denominational difference or something like an Anglican Christian might acknowledge a Baptist Christian as a Christian they'll do that on the, but, 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 but they're being dishonest they believe that you and I are completely deceived by the devil as indeed we believe they are um, it, it, it's, it does no one any help at all when Christians relate to JWs as if they are Christians that, that is hopeless I mean they're not they're, they're no more Christians than Muslims and you know Mormons anything else um, but they they believe that unbelievers are just annihilated I mean, we've already seen, haven't we, that everyone gets raised from the dead, according to Paul. But they believe that everyone's annihilated. And of those who survive, the JWs kind of, who obviously stay really good JWs all their lives, you know, from the point that they get converted, they become, they inhabit the earth in a kind of a ongoing paradise state. Now, one thing is worth saying here, actually, because... Um, you, you, JWs are often criticised by Christians on a point where actually the JWs tend to be more right than most Christians are actually because the JWs see that the, like the drones all right, your standard JWs not the elite 144,000 but your standard JWs they spend eternity on a recreated earth that's like paradise well my bible says that and I've, I've never quite understood why Christians almost pitch in on them on that point almost as if they're trying to make you know eternity too earthy well eternity is earthy because we spend eternity on the earth I mean that's so one's got to be careful about all the stuff they go into about you know sort of like spending an eternity on earth and earth is going to be absolutely beautiful they're right about that paradise is going to be restored to us alright sorry what happens to the 144,000 right the 144,000 
uh, would just kind of... I, I suppose the outlook is that they would spend eternity on the earth much as Adam and Eve would have done if they hadn't been saved, all right? The 144,000 and they alone, um, you know, sort of like uh, they're the ones who I suppose will get what you call glorified. They actually, when push comes to shove, teach that those 144 become God. So now, not a lot of JWs know that. So all the JWs on the earth? Yes. Yes. But some of the 144,000? Yes, but they're like an elite. So, um, they, so they, live, they live with people, the rest of the JWs? I believe so, but, but their existence is probably a bit more heavenly. Right. I don't understand okay. fully the distinctions that they make, but... Um, but it's only, is it only the home churches that... Um, yes, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and, and the rest are like the drones on the earth, as it were. Yeah. Everyone else is annihilated. Yes. But they don't believe that the earth um, sort of destroyed and then is uh, a new earth. I don't know. They might or they might not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they believe that. They believe that peace is going to be brought Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Fine. I mean, there's a sense in which that's almost a technical point because the end result is the same. But um, you know, but I mean, one does. You know, because on some points about, not the end times in general, but in the point about how we spend eternity, there are aspects of the JW's teaching where they're actually closer to what the Bible says than a lot of Christians, who, when you talk about it, still seem to have this you know, like ethereal spirits in heaven or something. Um, how do they get around um, Revelation 20, 14? Revelation 20, 14. Um, Right, okay. Now what they do in regards to um, all, all this stuff is much as lots of Christians do. And they say that Revelation is a book of symbolism. Well, I mean, yeah, of course there's symbolism in Revelation, but they would lift it entirely out of any literal sense as well. And again, as soon as you do that, I mean, for instance, the hundred, their magic 144,000 comes from um, Revelation, chapter 12, no, chapter 14, no, chapter 12 and 14, I think. But the point is, they say that the number 140,000 is literal, 144,000 JWs. That's literal, it's a literal number. That's so much of their teaching is based on it. But when the Bible says that these are 12,000 from every tribe of Israel, that they're all Jews. That's symbolic. But the thing is, that this is what many Christians do with Revelation all the way through anyway. The JWs are not alone in that. I mean, you know, sort of like, you know, when it comes to Revelation, I think many Christians are as confused and, and in the dark as JWs are. But again, it's the idea, have their cake and eat it. They want 144,000 to be a literal number. Fine, so do I. I believe that that 144,000 is a literal number of Jews. Oh no, that, that's, that's, that's symbolic. Well, I mean, why not say it's the other way round? The Jews bit is right, it's the 144,000 that's symbolic. You see, as soon as you start doing this to the Bible, I mean, you're, you know, I mean, a nod's as good as a wink to a blind horse, isn't it? Um, So, you know, what they do with Revelation, well, I mean, it, it, it's, um, they would say this is symbolic. For them, that would be annihilation. 
thrown into Lake of Fire. This is kind of all the symbolism of annihilation. Um, any other? Well, I mean, I suppose with... Uh, you've got to go a very long way before you'll find a Christian who actually understands the significance that Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You know, I've never heard anyone actually, you know, I mean, sort of the key point that Nicodemus said to Jesus was, how can a man, when he is old, be born again? Nicodemus's problem was not with the idea of being born again, it was how does it happen to you when you're old? Well, I mean, that, that very thing is the, you know, and of course it's because the under Pharisaic Judaism at that time, the Pharisees taught there were six ways to be born again. And, um, Ananot and Nicodemus had used up all his options. He'd been born again in four of the ways that were open to him. Two of the ways weren't open to him. The first was if you became king, that wasn't open to him. The second was that if you were became a proselyte, a Gentile becoming a Jew, all right? Now those two weren't options for him, but the other options, um, which was when you reach your bar mitzvah, um, when you get married, and we know he was married because he was on the Sanhedrin, um, when you became Pharisee, I think it was, and also when you became the head of a rabbinical school, and we know from the Greek in the passage that he was. The point is, Nicodemus had used up all his options available for being born again, and here's Jesus saying to Nicodemus, you must be born again. <laughs> Are there any left? So what do they mean by the term born again? Oh yeah, sure, sure. And what Jesus comes in to do is to say, yeah, but the real, the whole, the real born again you haven't had yet, and that's something that God does. Because the others were all fundamentally something that was arranged by man. You decide to get married, you decide to become a rabbi, or whatever. And um, but the thing about born again, I suppose that in some ways that's that that's not a difficult thing for any sectarian movement to get round. Because at the end of the day, it's just jargon. It's what do you mean by being born again? I mean, we know what being born again is all about. It's when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside us. Well, I mean, they're onto a loser there for a start because all they've got is an impersonal false. But of course, all they'll do is grab onto the thing Jesus says, the wind blows. I say, there it is, look, the wind. Look, being compared to see the wind, impersonal, impersonal. See, that, 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 that's all they'll do. They'll, they'll just use that to try and justify the impersonality of the Holy Spirit. You then, of course, because you know your Bible so well, respond with, yes, but on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. You see, not impersonal. So the point is that the symbolism was not the wind, it was not the personality of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was illustrating. It was the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit that you can't control him. He does what he likes because he's God. But JWs would just, I, I would imagine that if you got onto that, you just end up in endless words born again. I mean, I don't know what they teach on it, but no, nothing like what the Bible says about it. That's quite a sticking point with those those two. Um, you know, being born again, these dying once for for our sins. Yeah. And that's it. Yes. Saved and we're gonna be um, you know. Yes. Mm. And that, that one anyway, that's all. No. Or, or that or all the people that are around before Jesus. Salvation fundamentally, and of course, you'll find this with Christians who believe you can lose your salvation as well. That they tend to just take the tack, oh, well, let's just put our feet up and do it. 
you see. I mean, it's, it's you know, but of course grace can be abused. The fact that we believe that we can't lose our salvation doesn't mean that we're going to live like unbelievers just because we can't lose it. But, uh, but for them, um, I mean, it's like even in regards to their commitment and dedication, selling their Watchtower magazines and that, I mean, yeah, I mean, let's not take it away from them, all very admirable, but remember, they're busy earning their salvation. If they don't sell those magazines, they're losing brownie points. And if at the end of the day they haven't endured as a good JW, well, I mean, they're going to get annihilated, aren't they? Sure. So, you know, it's uh, maybe not quite what it seems, but yes, I mean, let's, let's admire their zeal, but remember they're under constraint. Their salvation, albeit their sal salvation is completely different for them than it is for us, but nevertheless what they understand by salvation depends on them being out knocking on the doors. Um, you know, being at the meetings and... Yeah. Oh! Yes. Yes, yes. Yes. I mean, we must make no concessions whatsoever to the fact that JWs are kind of even people on the way to being Christians. They are no such thing. They are of the spirit of Antichrist and they are false prophets. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't love them and, and you know, but let's, let's not get ourselves that, you know, this kind of. I mean, yeah, of course we've got to be loving towards them. But, uh, you know, let's not think that, you know, like really sincere, genuine people have almost missed by some small technicality. This is not the case at all. But on the other hand, you know, sort of like, yeah, I mean, they need to, they need to be saved like any other unbeliever. No, they are unbelievers. They got very upset. Yeah, yeah. People, Adam and Eve, were sinners. Yeah. But then they agree that we're all sinners. They're sinners. They're sitting there talking about the sinners. I don't get that. They would agree that they are sinners, and they will sin until they die. So they can't help it. What's the point? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I think they would probably acknowledge that you know you don't get free from sin. But all they're left with is a, a salvation by works. But I, I don't think that anybody was saved at all until until eighteen eighteen something when what is whoever it was now moment. Right. You know, that's Sorry, I missed the first bit of But they don't they don't believe anyone is saved before eighteen Whatever the date was, when the other people just, when their guy that started them first decided, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, found that he was first decided. Mm. Oh, I think this is what it really means. Yeah. You know, so, do, do, do you think that's yeah. what they've done? Um, that's what I think of lots of often. Possible, yes, possible, but then you've got to and then the church got in and distorted it all. So remember, they believed that Jesus and all the disciples were Jehovah's Witnesses. Albeit, not that they would be using that language, but that's the point. They, I, don't think, I don't think they would see that they were bringing in new revelation. I mean, they actually were. 
But that's not how they would see that they were rediscovering. Prophetically, they were rediscovering what the true gospel is. And of course, most of the like pseudo-Christian sectarian movements all take the you know the line that the you know like the church distorted the you know and that the main culprit was the formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity. That was when Satan got the church and um, believing that Jesus was God. Yes, but it's a complete like mirror image thing. Yeah. No, the New World Translation was done by JW scholars, uh, based based loosely on the same text that um, our modern Bibles are. Um, you know, based based on you know, and following the work of a couple of Bible, you know, sort of like uh, you know, called Westcott and Hall, who were you know, and 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 it's their work that, by and large, modern translations of the Bible are based on. But the JW obviously scholars doctored it. That, that's the point. They they changed it here and there. And they're actually they they have um, a technical work which is like an interlinear Bible where it's got their translation on one end and the literal Greek on the other. And there are actually places in it where um, their their wrong translation is on the page as their Bible. All right, that they would say is the right translation. But in the in the literal bit, they've, they've got what the Bible actually says. It's quite odd. It's quite odd, you know. <laughs> but you can't be entirely consistent with an error. Well, of course you can't. Because they're trying to make the Bible say what it doesn't say. Well, because the Bible doesn't... It's rather like, if you tell lies, all right, if you start lying, you've got to keep lying, but eventually you'll lose track of your own lies and you'll give yourself away. Because each lie has to be consistent with everything that's gone before. But eventually you just get so big you can't do it. So how can you take the Bible, which which has as its central point that Jesus is divine, how can you keep making that Bible show that Jesus isn't divine? That's the problem that all these guys have got. Yeah. Yes, exactly, and they dig themselves deeper and deeper. <laughs>